Well, good evening, everyone. So John chapter 8 is where we will be tonight, John chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful to turn to that. It will be on the screen, but let's not be lazy. Let's bring our own Bibles or your own version, and let's just work through it. Because as we work through this, I will be referring back and forward to some of the verses in this. John chapter 8 says this. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. He put her in front of the crowd, or they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses said to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him because Jesus stooped down and began to write in the dust. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said to her, neither do I. Go and sin no more. John 8, these first 11 verses, this is quite a controversial passage, controversial for so many reasons. If you've read it in your Bible, it will say that this isn't even supposed to be in the Bible. The reason is, is because it wasn't until after 60 AD, between 60 AD and 120 AD, so that's 60 years or so after Jesus, that they said this deserved to be in the Bible. Some versions of the original manuscripts have been pieced together at different parts within John or different parts within Luke but we've decided that it's supposed to be in here. Because there's nothing weird or strange. In fact, if you read some commentary, some commentaries won't even cover these 11 verses. But there's nothing in these 11 verses that should worry us or should concern us or are weird or strange. In fact, based on the woman at the well passage, this is a story that we reckon is very, very similar to what Jesus would do. And this story should be in this passage. That's one thing. Get that out of the way before someone quizzes me at the end. Because I didn't deal with that in the 5.30 and someone said. Okay, so don't talk to him at the end of the service. Okay? The second controversial thing about this is if you read the story, it's a little bit post-watershed stuff. Like you could imagine tonight if I am preaching and all of a sudden someone bursts through the door and drags this woman to the front and all of a sudden interrupts this sermon interrupts our night and it's this adulterous woman and it's the scribes and the pharisees who bring this woman into the middle of the story and we would say that this is a scandalous story and it is a scandalous shocking story but I want to say at the very start before we get into this passage the most scandalous thing about this passage is God's grace Jesus love forgiveness grace and mercy that he shows to this woman. So before we unpack this passage together, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for what we learn about you and your character and your love and your affection and who you are. 
And some of us are familiar with this story, but God, I just would pray that we would not become over-familiar with these stories. I pray, God, that you by your power and that you by your spirit will speak powerfully into our lives. I pray against all distractions tonight. I pray against the enemy who would want to interrupt this night. I pray against that in the name of Jesus. Because at the heart of this passage is a beautiful picture of the gospel, the beautiful picture of grace. And God, we all need to hear this. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you come. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will be our teacher. We ask these things in your name and everyone said... Amen. Okay, so you've got the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Some versions will put them together as the scribes and the Pharisees. You have the scribes and the Pharisees that bring this woman to Jesus and basically gate crash his sermon. I have three points for you tonight, but all three points are rather long, okay? So here's the first point. When the religious elite gate crash Jesus' sermon, scribes, Pharisees, the religious elite gate crash Jesus' sermon. The scribes and the Pharisees are super religious people. The scribes prided themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament law would include the Ten Commandments, but also include 613 other rules and commandments that we find in our Old Testament. The reason that we're so familiar with the Ten Commandments is because they're the ones that we read, they're the ones that we know, they're the ones that we do sermon series on, they're the ones that we're familiar with but the rest we're not so familiar with because if you've tried to get through your Bible in a year, Genesis is kind of fun. Exodus, I love. Leviticus, it just got hard. Numbers, Deuteronomy, what? And then we just give up our Bible reading. But if you were to stick and you were to read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would get these 613 rules. And they cover a whole host of things. They cover things like sexual purity. They cover things like business practice, how to sell property, how to buy property, what to do if someone wrongs you, what foods you can eat. So what foods are legit, what foods you can't eat, like prawns and prawn sandwiches and stuff like that. It covers things like how to rear cattle. It covers things about how to sow crops. Really boring things to you and I, but really, really important things in biblical times. In fact, the scribes love this. They love these rules. They love to keep rules. They just love their rules. And they were experts on this. So if you wanted to set a debate or discussion, you called in the, the scribes. You also have this other group called the Pharisees. Unlike the scribes, they prided themselves in keeping the rules and the regulations and the laws of the Old Testament. And they set themselves up as the example. They wanted to be the guardians of these traditions. They wanted everyone to see how good they are, to see how good they are at keeping all these 613 rules and laws and regulations. And they actually want you to aspire to be like them. They wanted you to look at them and go, man, I could never be like a Pharisee. I wish I could be like a Pharisee. Um, we don't really talk positively of scribes and Pharisees normally because like in this passage, they're never good guys. But they were super religious, super religious, super spiritual. The problem was they worshipped 
religion or they had turned religion into something that wasn't supposed to be. They had turned these rules and regulations into something that they weren't supposed to be. So the rules and religion were supposed to set you free, were supposed to help you live a good life, a godly life, were to help you live like a person that is in fellowship with God. But they had turned that into cold, hard rules that you were supposed to keep. Instead of setting you free, they used them to condemn people. People like the woman in this passage. This is trademark religious elite stuff in this. This is trademark scribes and Pharisee stuff to do what they've just done in this picture, in this scene. You can picture the scene, can't you? It's easy to use your imagination. In this, in this scene, you have the scribes and the Pharisees that drag this woman into Jesus' sermon. And the thing that's happening is that everyone is hanging on to Jesus' every word in the passage. So Jesus is at church, Jesus is at the temple, and Jesus is preaching, and everyone, just like you nice people out there, are hanging on every word that I'm saying, hanging on every word that Jesus is saying. And then all of a sudden... Off in the distance, you hear a commotion. A lot of muttered voices initially. And that commotion in the distance gets louder and gets louder and gets louder until I think that's outside our church. I think that commotion is actually going on in the car park. I think it's actually now in the entrance hall of the church. Boom, kick door open. No, it's literally just in our church now. The scribes and the Pharisees drag, manhandle this woman and bring her right to the very front of church, right to the very center of Jesus' sermon. A very private sin becomes a very public shaming. Scribes and Pharisees should have known better. They don't wait for a better time. They don't wait for Jesus' close in prayer. They don't wait for Jesus to lock up the church at the end of the night. They just come storming straight in interrupt everything, and the center of this meeting becomes this woman. You can imagine that private sin becomes a public shaming. So point number two, when an immoral woman gets exposed and shamed. So it's really easy to see what's just happened in this passage if you've read along. There is a woman that has just been, first three, caught in the act of adultery. It didn't happen yesterday. It didn't happen the day before. It didn't happen the week before or the month before. Or we, we think we heard it happened a few weeks ago. It literally just happened. And this woman gets dragged, possibly naked or precariously wrapped in her bed. She, this act has just happened. The Pharisees and the scribes, for whatever weird, creepy pervy reason have just witnessed this whole thing they just witnessed the whole thing that's strange that's not what scribes and pharisees should be witnessing so it makes me think that maybe there's more to this than we're first led to believe make no mistake this is a shocking scandalous x-rated moment that gets brought into church Private sin becomes very public shaming. And here we are in a culture, biblical culture was this honor-shame culture. And that was a massive deal. 
So if you get shame brought on your name or your family name, then you were ridiculed. This very act, like even to be the family associated with this woman, like you would have been ostracized, driven out of your community. No one wanted you. If you were associated with this woman in any shape or form, your family name, your name, your reputation, your standing in society was destroyed just like that. And you were kicked out of the village. We don't do that so much in our world. There's always scandals. There's always scandals in the news. There's always scandals when we turn on our TV and we have this tech, well, well, that's his private life. That's her private life. Not in this world. This private sin becomes public and when it becomes public, there is lots of shame. And in fact, if you're this woman, you're supposed to die. That's how serious this is. Notice how the Pharisees and the scribes have always viewed this woman. So when she gets exposed, we're not supposed to like her. When she gets exposed, we're supposed to reject her. When she gets exposed, we're supposed to like hunt her out of the city. But notice how the scribes and the Pharisees have always viewed this woman. It's there in verse 4. It's really, really subtle. You might miss it. But there in verse 4, it says, this woman, this woman, she has no name. We don't even know where she's come from. We don't even know what town, village, who she is. We know no details about her. All of a sudden, you see what's happened? This woman, it's become them versus us. It's become that group that I like versus this group that I really don't like. It becomes the religious versus the adulterer or the moral versus the immoral. You see what's just happened in this passage? There is a person in this passage, but this person becomes a this person. And when a this person, when a person becomes a this person, then they no longer are a person. And when a person no longer is a person, then we demote them, we diminish them, we devalue them, we dishonor them, and we treat her as this person. She's not real anymore. And we're free to do whatever we want with her. When a person is no longer a person, they become a point to be made. When a person is no longer a person, they become a problem. When a person is no longer a person, they become a problem that needs to be solved or a problem that needs to be removed. And that is exactly what's happened in this passage. The scribes and the Pharisees in first five, want to get Jesus' attention away from the woman so quickly. They want to expose this woman, but they want to get away from the woman and get Jesus onto the law. They want to ask Jesus a question. They want to bring Jesus back to the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments plus those 613. And if you knew your 613 laws, because all of a sudden church has become now a courtroom, as these accusers bring this woman. And what they do is they want to invoke the law that is filed under Deuteronomy chapter 22. And all good scribes and all good Pharisees know that the law that comes with Deuteronomy chapter 22, subsection marriage violations, which is found there in chapter 22 and verses 13 to 30. Everyone knows that in verse 22 of that. It says this, and I quote, If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. I rest my case, Your Honor. Plain as day. Plain as day. Like, the scribes and the Pharisees haven't been very pastoral in how they've dealt with this. 
woefully bad with her pastoral care. But they're right. They're right this woman is supposed to die. They've quoted the law, and the law says she must die. Except we have to pause there for a little second because we have to compare what is said in chapter 8 with, with what is said in chapter 22, verse 22 of Deuteronomy because they're not exactly the same. They're not exactly the same. Because all the Pharisees have done and all the scribes have done in chapter 8 have brought this woman. All they want to be stoned to, de- don't stoned to death is the woman. And I guess it begs the really obvious question. Where is Mr. Love Island in the middle of all this? Like, seriously, where is the man? Takes two to tango. Where's he? Where's he? Which makes me think this was a setup all along. Doesn't say it in the passage. I'm using preacher license, which we're allowed to use sometimes. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Did the scribes and the Pharisees pay some man to get this woman to stage this whole thing so that they could, in their creepy, pervy way, witness this whole, which is crazy. That is crazy. But did they do this? so as to bring this woman, who doesn't really matter to them because she's collateral damage, bring her so as to set up Jesus. Well, verse 6 of chapter 8 of John tells us that's exactly what they're doing. They take this woman and they are trying to trap Jesus. Here you have this woman, and a woman has now been used as a weapon in this passage. She's collateral damage, but she's the weapon that these so-called spiritual men are going to use to trip up Jesus because here's the big shock and here's the big scandal in this passage. Ever since chapter 5 of John, the scribes and the Pharisees have been trying to kill Jesus. They want to kill Jesus because Jesus does some stuff on the Sabbath. Ooh, But more than that, he claims to be equal with God. But we shouldn't be surprised with that because if you were here for the very first sermon on the very first Sunday that we did this and we looked at John 1, Jesus is God. But the people that don't see that are the scribes and the Pharisees. So here's the greater shock than this woman who's just been caught in adultery. The greater shock is that the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to set Jesus up and trap Jesus because the person that they really want to put on trial is Jesus. The woman that they re- or the person they really want dead is not this woman, but is this Jesus. And that is shocking. Last point. This is a long one, but it makes sense. When Jesus places the woman at the center of his sermon to gatecrash our version of religion. This is the big idea, the big point of this passage. So we thought this woman just gatecrashes our story. But Jesus wants to use this woman to gatecrash our version of religion or their version of religion in John chapter 8. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke the leaders. I said at 5.30 when I was there, if someone 
burst in through the door and interrupted my sermon, I think the first thing I would do was shut that whole thing down. I would, I would get some people to remove them. I would get that person removed out of the church because they've interrupted my sermon. I've studied hard to do my sermon this week and they've just walked in and interrupted my sermon. No, you get to go out, shoot out. I think if I was Jesus in this passage, I would have closed with prayer, sent everyone home, and then dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees. Or I would have ushered them out to a little private room and then dealt with this. Jesus doesn't do any of that in this passage. What does Jesus do? Jesus gets down and with his finger begins to doodle in the dirt. And that's very strange to me. I didn't see that power move coming. That seems very strange and very bizarre that Jesus would do that. It seems that he initially ignores them. He ignores the scribes, he ignores ignores the Pharisees. Because in verse 7, undeterred, they keep asking Jesus what they should do. And here comes Jesus' reply. I wonder, do you expect this from Jesus? Jesus stands up and he says, go ahead, kill the woman. But let the one who is without sin be the first to throw the rock. And then Jesus Stoops down and with his finger begins to doodle in the sand or the dirt or the mud or the clay again. You can kill this woman, says Jesus, but the person that has never sinned be the first to throw the rock. These are large rocks, jagged rocks. This is a horrific, painful, bloody way to die. And here's what would happen in biblical times. The accuser would come or accusers would come And they would say, we have witnessed such and such a sin. The law states that this person should be, and they would say what the treatment should be. So in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees are the accusers. They bring this woman. She has committed adultery. She's been caught in the act. They witness this. So you have to take responsibility for that. That's what would happen. You became a witness. You became... The juror, you become the jury, you become the executioner in this. And as the accuser, you are the one that lifts the stone and throws the first stone. That way you take responsibility for the claim you've made. And that way it meant that it would stop people just making up things of what they've said or we've heard. There's a massive, massive responsibility placed on the person that throws the first stone in this passage. Jesus says, if you have no sin, you be the first. You be the first to throw that stone. It takes a little time in our passage for everyone to walk away. It starts with the older. Older walk off first. Younger are the last to go. Maybe the younger because we like a fight. We can justify things. We're more pumped and we're more fired up for this but everyone walks away. We're not sure what Jesus is writing in the dirt. Loads of people have all kinds of different ideas. Some say that he was writing out the laws of the Ten Commandments and maybe the 613. Maybe he was writing the correct version of Deuteronomy 22, 22 in this year. 
Not sure. Some say that, well, maybe Jesus was writing down a list of sins, and whenever those people that were standing around saw their sin, they realized, well, hey, I'm, I've, I've no leg to stand on here, and then they walked away. Or others just say, he was just doodling in the, the dirt. We're not quite sure what he was writing. But here's, here's what we do know. There has been considerable volume in this passage, right up to verse 10. There has been a lot of volume in this passage. Verses 1 to 3, it is that commotion, that loud commotion as these group of Pharisees and scribes manhandle and drag this woman into the middle of the church. In verses 3 to 7, there is that commotion as the religious leaders are shouting at Jesus and reminding Jesus of what this woman has done and what the law says should happen And then we come to verse 8, and the noise we hear is Jesus on the ground with his finger writing in the dust. And what we hear next is the gentle thud of a rock as it hits the ground. And the next thing we hear is the crunch of sandals across the dirt or the sand as yet another person exits as a sinner. And then we have total silence. Total silence. What about the woman in our passage? Well, she hasn't said a word. You don't really have much to say if you're this woman in the passage. I reckon as soon as she was trailed into church, I reckon the first thing she did was throw herself onto the ground, roll into a ball, pull her hands over her head, close her eyes, and she just waited for what was coming next. Because what should have come next should have been those rocks. And they should have landed heavy on this woman. So you can imagine in verse 10, her surprise, maybe even her shock, as someone speaks to her. Someone, Jesus, speaks to her as a real life person. It's probably the first time anyone has spoken to her, really. It's probably the first time since verse 3 that she's actually lifted her head. And all of a sudden, she realizes that the people who were one moment ago pointing with their finger at her and with the other, a rock, ready to lob it at her, they have all vanished and they've all disappeared. And then Jesus says, where's your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she replied then neither do I. Go and sin no more. And the woman walks away. So what are we supposed to do with that? What was Jesus doing here? Because if he's not condemning this woman, then is he condoning her in some way? What's going on in this passage? Like surely if anyone could have thrown a stone, it was Jesus. If anyone is in this passage that has no sin, then it is Jesus. And Jesus could have lifted a stone and thrown it at this woman. And by law, that was okay. Why didn't Jesus condemn her? And like maybe stoning in our culture today, definitely in our culture today, is so harsh. Like let's keep it within the universal declaration of human rights for a moment. Let's not throw stones. But why doesn't Jesus throw some truth at this lady? Why doesn't he point her out? Why doesn't he make her the center of his sermon? Why isn't his sermon crescendo, don't be like this woman. She's bad, she's wicked, she's evil. She's committed adultery, she deserves to die. She's bad, she's 
faithless. Don't be like this woman. Why isn't that Jesus crescendo? Because this lady is Jesus' sermon crescendo. She's broken the law. Yes. Her private sin has become public shaming. Yes. She's the talk of the town. Yes. She's despised. Yes. This is scandalous. Yes. Deuteronomy 22, 2, she deserves to die. Yes. But here's the point. Up until verse 10 of a passage, everyone in this passage thought they were better than the woman. More religious, more spiritual, better standing in society, better standing within the church setting, more appropriate that they are there in this setting compared to this woman that's just come in. And maybe up until first 10, everyone in this room thought something similar. Thought, well, I, I'm not like that woman. I'm not. If someone like that was dragged into church tonight, I could say, well, I'm not as bad a person as that person. Or our hang-up at the end of this chapter is about the condemnation and the condoning. Because it doesn't seem fair that she gets to walk away. Is that true, churchy, religious people? doesn't seem fair. That's our hang-up at the end of this passage. But here's what Jesus does. When he says, let the person who has no sin throw the first stone, he puts everyone on the same level. Everyone's on the same level. Jesus turns this woman into a real-life person. A person like you and me. Because we're all guilty. We're all broken. We're all lost. We all make a mess. We all are a mess. And if you don't want to admit that, then I'll admit that. I'm not necessarily proud to admit that from the front, but I'll admit that from the front. I'm broken, I'm flawed, sinful, not perfect, far from it. We all have things that we would hope stay hidden in the closet and never come out. We all know that we're not better, but we all play a game called moral religious comparisons. And the way we win that game is that we have, to, in order to be a saint, the way we win that is we have to focus on someone else's sins. So we bring out this adulterous woman and we go, look at her sins. Or we bring out the person that we've created into the problem and we go, look at their sins. Or we drag out the grips that we don't really like and we say, look at their sins. So we drag out the grips that are proudly parading around London this weekend and we say, look at them, Jesus. Look at their sins. I'm so much better than they are, we say proudly, proudly ourselves. Or we'll drag out the addicts or we'll drag out the murderers or the paramilitaries or the prostitutes or the druggies or the rapists or the abusers or the immigrants or those with different political worldviews than we have or we'll drag out the liars and the gossips. We'll drag out the Catholics and those that are so different to us. And we'll say, look at their sins, Jesus. Look at their sins, Jesus. And we don't throw stones. We'd never throw stones. But we do throw our words our harsh words. We do throw our condemnation and we do throw our judgmental words and we do throw our jokes at them which are equally as crushing and painful 
and will destroy. Jesus says, if you have no sin, if you have no sin, then go ahead and stand as the witness, stand as the judge, stand as the jury, stand as the executioner, if you have no sin. But here's the thing. There are things that we do not want to be exposed here tonight. If our internet history was to be exposed tonight, if our text messages were to be exposed tonight, if our private behavior in our bedrooms was to be exposed tonight, if our private behavior in our workplace was to be exposed tonight, I dare say there'd be some people would run as hard as they can from this place and would never, ever return. Jesus doesn't condemn this woman, but neither does he condone this woman either. He tells her to go and sin no more. He doesn't condemn her because he meets her exactly where this woman is. Like, how do you think this woman feels in the passage? She's already condemned. She's already ridiculed. She's already been mocked. She's already been discussed. That private has now been public. What do you think she needs after first 10? More condemnation? A big old rock to beat off the side of her head? What do you think she needs? Jesus knows what she needs. She needs a gentle, compassionate encounter with Jesus. In John 1, verse 14, we read this. The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came as God and he came full of grace and truth. Jesus is truth, but he leads with grace. Jesus is truth, but he pastors with grace grace. He speaks with grace. He loves with grace. I once listened, I was in holidays one time, I once listened to this lady who was describing her job. She was from America and she used to work in one of the maximum security prisons there in America. And we were in holidays and one, I, I was earwigging, okay, just listening in the conversation as you do. And uh, it was interesting because the local person, the local man asked her, how do you give care to people that have committed such horrific crimes? Like these are people that are in prison, in maximum security prison, for some of what we would describe as some of the most heinous, some of the most wicked, some of the most vile crimes that you get. How do you give care to these types of people? Do you know what her response was? I am trained to give the best medical care. I'm not trained. I'm not, I don't get into that situation to judge. I don't walk in to judge the person. I walk in to give them the best medical care that I can possibly give to them. And maybe not everyone will agree with what I'm about to say here, but isn't that a picture of the church? Isn't that what we're supposed to be? Offering hope? Offering care, offering grace, not condemning, but not condoning, modeling Jesus in truth and grace. Let's just wrap up this passage. Who's at the center of the passage? This woman. Why is she at the center of the passage? Because Jesus wants to make a really, really important point, and it is this. This lady walks away. She walks away with her life. But she didn't deserve to walk away with her life. She should have died. 
She walks away because Jesus absorbs her sin. He takes her sin, and when Jesus takes her sin, he condemns himself to die, not this woman. And isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what the gospel is? And with that, Jesus crashes our version of religion. And it's not all about the good things that we do. It's not all about the religious superiority that we think we have. It's not about that we're better than someone or compared to someone else, that we're not just as wicked or evil as them. We are all in need of Jesus absorbing our sin. Because if Jesus doesn't step in and absorb our sin, then we have no excuse. We have no plea before him. Jesus stands and he takes responsibility for sin. The price tag for sin is death. And at the moment when we get sentenced to death, Jesus steps in and he absorbs our sin. He absorbs the full wrath of God. He absorbs the wrath of God that is poured out because of our rebellion, because of the fact that we wanted to do things our way and not God's way, because we want to be many kings and queens of our life and dethrone God from our life as the king of our life. But Jesus steps in on a cross and he absorbs our sins. And he absorbs the sins of the adulterous woman. He absorbs He absorbs the sins of the religious elite, the moral and the immoral, the religious and the non-religious, the squeaky clean and the sexual deviant. Jesus absorbs the sins of the addicts, the murderers, the paramilitaries, the prostitutes, the druggies, the rapists, the lustful, the abusers, the immigrants, the rich, the poor, the left, the right, those that don't agree with our political views. He absorbs the sins of the marginalized, the young, the old, the liars, the gossips, the Catholics, the prods, the heterosexuals, the homosexuals, the male, the female, the gender fluid, the trans, the broken, the lost, that I have made an utter mess of my life. He steps in and absorbs sins. The brokenness of that, the wickedness of that, and we are all on a same level. And Jesus goes to a cross to die for our sins so that we get to walk away tonight with our life because he gave up his life. So whoever you are, whoever you think you are, whoever whoever they say you are, remember in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together.